Notre Dame de Paris by Victor Hugo. Book 8, Chapter 1. The Crown Piece Changed to a Dry Leaf. Gringoire and the entire court of miracles were in a terrible state of anxiety. Esmeralda had not been heard from for a whole long month, which greatly grieved the Duke of Egypt and his friends the vagrants. Nor did anyone know what had become of her goat, which redoubled Gringoire's grief. One night the gypsy girl had disappeared, and since then had given no sign of life. All search for her was vain. Some malicious sham epileptics told Gringoire that they had met her that same evening near the Pont Saint-Michel, walking with an officer. But this husband, after the fashion of Bohemia, was an incredulous philosopher, and besides, he knew better than anyone else how chaste his wife was. He had been able to judge what invincible modesty resulted from the two combined virtues of the amulet and the gypsy and he made a mathematical calculation of the resistance of that chastity multiplied into itself. He was therefore quite easy on this point. But he could not explain her disappearance. It was a great grief to him, and he would have grown thin from fretting had such a thing been possible. He had forgotten everything else, even his literary tastes, even his great work, De figuris regularibus et irregularibus, concerning regular and irregular figures, which he intended to have printed with the first money which he might have, for he raved about printing ever since he had seen the didascalon of Hugues de Saint-Victor printed with the celebrated types of Wendelin de Speer. One day, as he was walking sadly by the Tournelle, he noticed a crowd before one of the doors of the Palace of Justice. "'What's the matter?' he asked a young man who was just coming out. "'I don't know, sir,' replied the young man. "'I hear that they are trying a woman who murdered a man-at-arms. "'As it seems that there was witchcraft about it, "'the bishop and the judge of the bishop's court have interfered in the matter. "'And my brother, who is archdeacon of Josas, spends his entire time here. "'Now I wanted to speak to him, but I could not get at him on account of the crowd.' which annoys me mightily, for I am in need of money. Alas, sir, said Gringoire, I wish I could lend you some, but if my breeches are full of holes, it is not from the weight of coins. He dared not tell the young man that he knew his brother the archdeacon, whom he had not revisited since the scene in the church, a neglect which embarrassed him. The student went his way, and Gringoire followed the crowd, going up the stairs to the great hall. He considered that there was nothing like the sight of a criminal trial to dispel melancholy, the judges being generally most delightfully stupid. The people with whom he had mingled walked on and elbowed one another in silence. After a slow and tiresome progress through a long dark passage which wound through the palace like the intestinal canal of the ancient edifice, he reached a low door opening into a hall which his tall figure enabled him to examine over the moving heads of the mob. The hall was huge and ill-lighted, which made it seem still larger. Evening was coming on. The long-pointed windows admitted but a faint ray of daylight, which faded before it reached the vaulted ceiling. An enormous latticework of carved beams, 
whose countless figures seemed to move confusedly in the shadow. There were already several lighted candles here and there on the tables, and shining upon the heads of clerks bending over musty papers. The front of the hall was occupied by the crowd. To the right and left there were lawyers in their robes and tables. In the background, upon a dais, a number of judges, the last rows of whom were lost in the darkness. Their faces were forbidding and unmoved. The walls were plentifully sprinkled with fleur-de-lis. A huge crucifix was dimly visible over the heads of the judges, and everywhere there were pikes and halberds tipped with fire by the light of the candles. "'Sir,' asked Gringoire of one of his neighbors, "'who are all those people drawn up in line yonder, like prelates in council?' "'Sir,' said the neighbor, "'those are the counselors of the high chamber on the right, and the counselors of inquiry on the left.' the referendaries in black gowns, and the masters in scarlet ones. "'Yonder, above them,' added Gringoire, "'who is that big red-faced fellow in such a perspiration? "'That is the president. "'And those sheep behind him,' continued Gringoire, "'who, as we have already said, did not love the magistracy. "'This was perhaps partly due to the grudge "'which he had borne the palace of justice,' ever since his dramatic misadventure. Those are the masters of requests of the king's household. And that boar in front of them? That is the clerk to the court of parliament. And that crocodile on the right? Master Philippe Lullier, advocate extraordinary to the king. And that big black cat on the left? Master Jacques Charmelou, king's proxy to the ecclesiastical court, with the officials. Now then, sir, said Gringoire, what are all these worthy men doing here? They are trying a case. Whom are they trying? I do not see the prisoner. It's a woman, sir. You cannot see her. She has her back to us, and is hidden from us by the crowd. Stay. There she is, where you see that group of halberds. Who is the woman? asked Gringoire. Do you know her name? "'No, sir, I have only just got here. "'I merely suppose that there is sorcery in the case "'because the judge of the bishop's court is present at the trial.' "'Well,' said our philosopher, "'we will see all these men of the gown devour human flesh. "'It is as good a sight as any other.' "'Sir,' remarked his neighbor, "'doesn't it strike you that Master Jacques Charmelou "'has a very amiable air?' "'Hm,' replied Gringoire, I always suspect an amiability with pinched nostrils and thin lips. Here their neighbors demanded silence from the two chatterers. An important piece of evidence was being heard. Gentlemen, said an old woman in the middle of the hall, whose face was so lost in the abundance of her garments that she looked like a walking rag-bag. Gentlemen, the thing is as true as it is true that my name is La Falordelle, and that I have lived for forty years on the Pont Saint-Michel, paying my rent, lord's dues, and quit-rents punctually. And the door is just opposite the house of Tessin Caillard the dyer, which is on the side looking upstream. A poor old woman now, a pretty girl once, gentlemen. Someone said to me only a few days ago, La Falordel, don't sit at your wheel and spin too much of an evening. 
The devil loves to comb old women's distaffs with his horn. It is very certain that the specter monk who roamed about the temple last year now haunts the city. La Falardel, beware lest he knock at your door. One evening I was spinning at my wheel. There was a knock at the door. I asked who was there. Someone swore roundly. I opened. Two men came in, one in black, with a handsome officer. I could only see the eyes of the one in black, two burning coals. All the rest was hat and cloak. This is what they said to me. The St. Martha room. That is my upstairs room, gentlemen, my nicest one. They gave me a crown piece. I put the crown in my drawer, and I said, That shall be to buy tripe tomorrow at the Gloriette Shambles. We went up. When we got to the upper room, while my back was turned, the black man disappeared. This startled me a little. The officer, who was as handsome as any great lord, went downstairs again with me. He left the house. By the time I had spun a quarter of a skein, he was back with a lovely young girl, a puppet who would have shone like the sun if her hair had been well-dressed. She had with her a goat, a big goat. I have forgotten now whether it was black or white. That bothered me. As for the girl, she was none of my business. But the goat! I don't like those animals. They have a beard and horns. They look like men, and then they savor of sorcery. However, I said nothing. I had the crown piece. That was right, my lord judge, wasn't it? I took the captain and the girl to the upper room, and I left them alone, that is, with the goat. I went down and began to spin again. You must know that my house has a ground floor and a floor above. It overlooks the river at the back, like all the rest of the houses on the bridge, and the window on the ground floor and the one above both open upon the water. As I say, I was spinning. I don't know how I fell to thinking of the goblin monk, of whom the goat had reminded me. And then, that pretty girl was so queerly rigged out. All at once I heard a scream upstairs, and something fell on the floor, and the window opened. I ran to my window, which is just under it, and I saw a dark mass fall past me into the water. It was a phantom, dressed like a priest. It was bright moonlight. I saw as plainly as possible. He swam away towards the city. Then, all in a tremble, I called the watch. Those gentlemen entered, and being somewhat merry, and not knowing what the matter was, they fell to beating me. But I soon explained things to them. We went upstairs, and what did we find? My poor room all stained with blood. The captain stretched out at full length with a dagger in his throat. The girl pretending to be dead, and the goat in a terrible fright. "'Well done,' said I. "'It will take me more than a fortnight to scrub up these boards. I shall have to scrape them. It will be a dreadful piece of work.' They carried off the officer, poor young man, and the girl, all disheveled and in disorder. But stay. The worst of all is that next day, when I went to get the crown to buy my tripe, I found a withered leaf in its place. The old woman paused. A murmur of horror ran round the room. 
the phantom, the goat, and all that, savor of sorcery, said one of Gringoire's neighbors. So does that withered leaf, added another. No doubt, continued a third, the girl was a witch, who was in league with the goblin monk to plunder officers. Gringoire himself was inclined to consider the whole story both terrible and probable. La Falordel, said the president, majestically, have you nothing more to tell the court? No, my lord, replied the old woman, except that in the report my house was called a dirty, rickety hut, which is an outrageous way to talk. The houses on the bridge are not much to look at, because there are so many people there. But all the same, even butchers don't scorn to live there, and some of them are rich folks, and married to very neat, handsome women. The magistrate, who had reminded Gringoire of a crocodile, now rose. Silence, said he. I beg you, gentlemen, not to lose sight of the fact that a dagger was found upon the prisoner. La Falordel, did you bring that leaf into which the crown piece which the evil spirit gave you was changed? Yes, my lord, replied she. I found it. Here it is. An usher handed the dead leaf to the crocodile who shook his head mournfully, and passed it to the president, who sent it on to the king's proxy to the ecclesiastical court. And in this way it went the round of the room. It is a birch leaf, said Master Jacques Charmelou. This was a fresh proof of magic. A counselor next took up the word. Witness, two men went upstairs together in your house. The black man, whom you first saw disappear, and afterwards swim the Seine in a priest's gown, and the officer. Which of the two gave you the money? The old woman thought for a moment, and said, It was the officer. A confused clamor ran through the crowd. Ah, thought Gringoire, that shakes my conviction. However, Master Philippe Lullier, advocate extraordinary to the king, interfered afresh. I must remind you, gentlemen, that in his deposition, written at his bedside, the murdered officer, while he declares that he had a vague idea at the instant the man in black accosted him that it might easily be the goblin monk, added that the phantom had urged him to keep his rendezvous with the prisoner, and upon his remarking that he had no money, gave him the crown, which the said officer paid away to La Falordel. Therefore, the crown was a coin from hell. This conclusive observation seemed to dispel all the doubts of Gringoire and the other skeptics in the audience. Gentlemen, you have the brief, added the king's advocate, sitting down. You can consult the statement of Phoebus de Chateau-Pères. At the sound of this name, the prisoner rose. Her head appeared above the crowd. The terrified Gringoire recognized Esmeralda. She was pale. Her hair, once so gracefully braided and spangled with sequins, fell about her in disorder. Her lips were livid. Her hollow eyes were horrible. Alas! Phoebus, she said wildly, where is he? Oh, gentlemen, before you kill me, in pity, tell me if he still lives. Be silent, woman, replied the president. That does not concern us. Oh, have mercy. Tell me if he is alive. 
she repeated, clasping her beautiful but emaciated hands, and her chains rattled as she moved. Well, said the king's advocate, dryly, he is dying. Are you satisfied? The wretched girl fell back upon her seat, voiceless, tearless, white as a waxen image. The president leaned towards a man standing at his feet, with a golden cap and a black gown, a chain about his neck, and a wand in his hand. Usher, bring in the other prisoner. All eyes were turned upon a small door which opened, and to Gringoire's great dismay, a pretty goat, with gilded horns and hoofs, appeared. The dainty creature paused a moment on the threshold, stretching her neck as if, perched on the point of a rock, she had a vast horizon before her. All at once she saw the gypsy girl, and leaping over the table and the head of a clerk with two bounds, she was at her knees. Then she curled herself gracefully at the feet of her mistress, imploring a word or a caress, but the prisoner remained motionless, and even poor Jolly could not win a look from her. "'Why, but that is the ugly beast I told you about,' said La Falardel, "'and I recognize the pair of them well enough.' Jacques Charmolou interrupted her. "'If it please you, gentlemen, we will proceed to examine the goat.' Such was indeed the other prisoner. Nothing was simpler at that time than to bring a suit for witchcraft against an animal. Among other details— we find in the provost's accounts for 1466 a curious item of the costs of the trial of Gilet Soulard and his sow, executed for their demerits at Corbeil. Everything is set down, the cost of the pen in which the sow was imprisoned, the five hundred bundles of short faggots brought from the port of Morsant, the three pints of wine and the bread for the victim's last repast, fraternally shared by the executioner even the eleven days' feeding and keep of the sow, at eight Paris pence each. Sometimes they went even beyond animals. The capitularies of Charlemagne and Louis the Debonair inflict severe penalties upon those fiery phantoms who take the liberty of appearing in mid-air. Meantime, the king's proxy to the ecclesiastical court cried aloud, "'If the devil possessing this goat,' and which has resisted every exorcism, persist in his evil deeds, if he terrify the court with them, we warn him that we shall be compelled to send him to the gibbet or the stake. Gringoire was in a cold perspiration. Charmolou took from a table the gypsy girl's tambourine, and presenting it to the goat in a particular way, he asked the creature, What time is it? The goat looked at him with an intelligent eye, lifted her gilded hoof, and struck seven blows. It was indeed seven o'clock. A movement of terror ran through the crowd. Gringoire could not restrain himself. "'She is lost!' he cried aloud. "'You see that she doesn't know what she is doing.' "'Silence among the people at the end of the hall,' said the usher, sharply. Jacques Charmolou by the aid of the same maneuvers with the tambourine, made the goat perform various other tricks as to the day of the month, the month of the year, etc., 
which the reader has already witnessed. And, by an optical illusion common to judicial debates, those same spectators who had perhaps more than once applauded the innocent pranks of Jolly in the public streets were terrified by them within the halls of the Palace of Justice. The goat was clearly the devil. It was still worse when, the king's proxy having emptied out upon the floor a certain leather bag full of movable letters, which Jolly wore about her neck, the goat selected with her foot the separate letters spelling out the fatal name, Phoebus. The spells to which the captain had fallen a victim seemed to be irresistibly demonstrated, and in all eyes the gypsy girl, that enchanting dancer who had so often dazzled the passers-by with her grace, was nothing but a horrible witch. Moreover, she gave no sign of life, neither the pretty pranks of Jolly nor the threats of the magistrates nor the muttered curses of the audience seemed to reach her ear. In order to rouse her, an officer was forced to shake her most unmercifully, the president raising his voice solemnly as he said, "'Girl, you are of the gypsy race, addicted to sorceries. You, with your accomplice, the bewitched goat involved in the charge, did, upon the night of the twenty-ninth of March last, murder and stab, in league with the powers of darkness, by the aid of charms and spells, a captain of the king's troops, one Phoebus de Chateaupers. Do you persist in denying this?' "'Horrible!' cried the young girl, hiding her face in her hands. "'My Phoebus! Oh, this is indeed hell!' "'Do you persist in your denial?' coldly asked the president. "'Certainly I deny it,' said she, in terrible accents, and she rose to her full height, her eyes flashing. The president continued bluntly. Then how do you explain the facts alleged against you? She answered in a broken voice. I have told you already. I do not know. It was a priest, a priest whom I do not know, an infernal priest who has long pursued me. There it is, said the judge, the goblin monk. Oh, my lords, have pity. I am only a poor girl. A gypsy, said the judge. Master Jacques Charmolou said gently, In view of the prisoner's painful obstinacy, I demand that she be put to the rack. Agreed, said the president. The wretched girl shuddered. Still, she rose at the order of the halberdiers and walked with quite firm step, preceded by Charmolou and the priests of the bishop's court, between two rows of halberds towards a low door which suddenly opened and closed behind her, making the unhappy Gringoire feel as if she had been devoured by some awful monster. As she disappeared, a plaintive bleat was heard. It was the little goat mourning for her. The hearing was over. A counselor remarked that the gentlemen were tired, and that it would be a long time for them to wait until the torture was over and the president replied that a magistrate should be ever ready to sacrifice himself to his duty. "'What a disagreeable, tiresome jade,' said an old judge. 
to force us to send her to the rack when we have not supped. Chapter 2. Continuation of the crown piece changed to a dry leaf. After going up a few steps and down a few steps, in corridors so dark that they were lighted with lamps at midday, Esmeralda, still surrounded by her dismal escort, was pushed by the sergeants of the palace into a room of forbidding appearance. This room, round in form, occupied the ground floor of one of those great towers which still rise above the layer of modern structures with which the new Paris has covered the old city. There were no windows in this vault, nor was there any opening save the low entrance closed by a huge iron door. Still, there was no lack of light. A furnace was built in the thickness of the wall. A vast fire had been kindled in it, which filled the vault with its red glow and robbed a paltry candle, placed in a corner, of all its radiance. The iron grating which served to close the furnace was just now raised, only showing, at the mouth of the flaming chasm against the dark wall, the lower edge of its bars, like a row of sharp black teeth set at regular intervals which made the furnace look like the mouth of one of those legendary dragons that spit forth fire. By the light which it cast, the prisoner saw, all around the room, terrible instruments, whose use she did not understand. In the middle of the room was a leather mattress, laid almost flat upon the ground, over which hung a strap with a buckle, attached to a copper ring held by a flat-nosed monster carved on the keystone of the vaulted ceiling. Pincers, nippers, and broad plowshares filled the interior of the furnace and glowed in a confused white-hot heap upon the living coals. The blood-red light of the furnace illuminated in the entire room nothing but a mass of horrible objects. This Tartarus was known as the torture chamber. Upon the bed sat carelessly Pierrot Torteru, the sworn torturer. His assistants, two square-faced gnomes with leather aprons and linen breeches, were stirring the iron instruments upon the coals. In vain the poor girl strove to summon all her courage. As she entered the room, a feeling of terror overcame her. The sergeants of the bailiff of the palace ranged themselves on one side, the priests of the bishop's court on the other. A clerk, pen, ink, and paper, and a table were in one corner. Master Jacques Charmelou approached the girl with a very sweet smile, saying, "'Do you still persist in your denial, my dear child?' "'Yes.' she replied in a faint voice. "'In that case,' resumed Charmelou, "'it will be our very painful duty "'to question you more urgently than we could wish. "'Be kind enough to take your seat on that bed. "'Master Pierrot, make room for the young lady "'and close the door.' "'Pierrot rose with a grunt. "'If I close the door,' he muttered, "'my fire will go out.' "'Very well, my dear fellow,' replied Charmelou. "'Then leave it open.' But Esmeralda still stood. 
that leather bed upon which so many wretches had writhed in torment, alarmed her. Terror froze the marrow in her bones. She stood there, stupefied and bewildered. At a sign from Charmeloo, the two assistants took hold of her and seated her upon the bed. They did not hurt her, but when they touched her, when the leather touched her, she felt all the blood in her body flow back to her heart. She cast a desperate look around the room. She seemed to see all those monstrous tools of torture, which were to the instruments of every sort which she had hitherto seen, what bats, spiders, and woodlice are to birds and insects, moving and advancing towards her from every direction, to crawl over her and bite her and pinch her. "'Where is the doctor?' asked Charmeloo. "'Here,' replied a black gown which she had not noticed before. She shivered. "'Young lady,' resumed the caressing voice of the king's proxy to the ecclesiastical court, "'for the third time, do you persist in denying those things of which you are accused?' This time she could only nod her head. Her voice failed her. "'You persist,' said Jacques Charmeloo. "'Then I am extremely sorry, but I must perform the duty of my office.' "'Mr. Proxy,' said Pierrot abruptly, "'with what shall we begin?' Charmeloo hesitated a moment, with the doubtful face of a poet in search of a rhyme. "'With the buskin,' said he at last. The unfortunate girl felt herself so wholly forsaken by God and man that her head fell upon her breast like a lifeless thing destitute of all strength. The torturer and the doctor approached her together. At the same time, the two assistants began to rummage in their hideous arsenal. At the clink of that frightful heap of iron, the unhappy creature trembled like a dead frog when galvanism is applied to it. "'Oh,' she murmured, in so low a tone that no one heard it, "'oh, my Phoebus!' Then she relapsed into her former immobility and marble-like silence. The sight would have wrung any heart save the hearts of judges." She seemed some poor sinning soul questioned by Satan at the scarlet gates of hell. Could it be that this gentle, fair, and fragile creature, a poor grain of millet given over by human justice to be ground in the fearful mills of torture, was the miserable body upon which that frightful array of saws, wheels, and racks was to fasten? the being whom the rough hands of executioners and pincers were to handle? But the horny fingers of Pierrot Torterou's assistants had already brutally bared that charming leg and that tiny foot, which had so often amazed the bystanders with their grace and beauty in the streets of Paris. "'Tis a pity,' growled the torturer, as he looked at the dainty and delicate limb." Had the archdeacon been present, he would certainly have recalled at this moment his symbol of the spider and the fly. Soon the wretched victim saw, through a cloud which spread before her eyes, the buskin approach. Soon she saw her foot, 
locked between the iron-bound boards, hidden by the hideous machine. Then terror restored her strength. "'Take it off!' she cried frantically, and starting up all disheveled. "'Mercy!' She sprang from the bed to fling herself at the feet of the king's proxy, but her leg was held by the heavy mass of wood and iron, and she sank down upon the buskin, more helpless than a bee with a leaden weight upon its wing. At a sign from Charmelou, she was replaced upon the bed, and two coarse hands bound about her slender waist the strap which hung from the ceiling. "'For the last time, do you confess the facts in the case?' asked Charmelou, with his unshaken benevolence. "'I am innocent.' "'Then, young lady, how do you explain the circumstances brought against you?' "'Alas, sir, I do not know.' "'Then you deny everything?' "'Everything.' "'Proceed,' said Charmelou to Pierrot. Pierrot turned the handle of the screwjack, the buskin contracted, and the wretched girl uttered one of those terrible shrieks which defy all orthography in any human language. "'Stop,' said Charmelou to Pierrot. "'Do you confess?' said he to the gypsy. "'Everything!' cried the miserable girl. "'I confess! I confess! Mercy!' She had not calculated her strength when she braved the torture. Poor girl! Her life thus far had been so joyous, so sweet— so smooth, the first pang vanquished her. "'Humanity compels me to tell you,' remarked the king's proxy, "'that if you confess, you can look for nothing but death.' "'I hope so, indeed,' said she. And she fell back upon the leather bed, almost fainting, bent double, suspended by the strap buckled around her waist. "'There, my beauty,' "'Hold up a little,' said Master Pierrot, lifting her. "'You look like the golden sheep which hangs on my lord of Burgundy's neck.' Jacques Charmelou raised his voice. "'Clerk, write. "'Young gypsy girl, you confess your complicity in the love feasts, revels, and evil practices of hell with wizards, demons, and witches? Answer.' "'Yes,' said she in so low a voice that it was scarcely more than a whisper. "'You confess that you have seen the ram which Beelzebub reveals in the clouds to summon his followers to the witch's Sabbath, and which is only seen by sorcerers?' "'Yes.' "'You confess that you have worshipped the heads of Baphomet, those abominable idols of the Templars?' "'Yes.' that you have held constant intercourse with the devil in the shape of a tame goat, included in the trial? Yes. And finally, you acknowledge and confess that with the help of the foul fiend and the phantom, commonly called the goblin monk, on the night of the twenty-ninth of March last, you did murder and assassinate a certain captain named Phoebus de chateau -Pers. She raised her large, steady eyes to the magistrate's face, and answered as if mechanically, without any effort or convulsion. Yes.
it was plain that she was utterly broken. "'Right, clerk,' said Charmeleau, and addressing the torturers, "'release the prisoner and lead her back to the courtroom.' When the prisoner was unshod, the king's proxy examined her foot, still numb with pain. "'Come,' said he, "'there's no great harm done. You screamed in time. You can dance yet, my beauty.' Then he turned to his companions from the bishop's court. "'So justice is enlightened at last. That's a comfort, gentlemen. The young lady will bear witness that we have acted with the utmost gentleness.'" Chapter 3 End of the Crown Piece Changed to a Dry Leaf When she returned to the audience chamber, pale and limping, she was greeted with a general buzz of pleasure. On the part of the audience, it was caused by that feeling of satisfied impatience which is felt at the theater, at the end of the final intermission, when the curtain rises and the last act begins. On the part of the judges, it came from a prospect of soon supping. The little goat also bleated with joy. She tried to run to meet her mistress, but she was tied to the bench. Night had now fallen. The candles, whose number had not been increased, cast so little light that the walls of the courtroom could not be seen. Shadows wrapped everything in a sort of mist. The apathetic faces of some of the judges could just be distinguished in the gloom. Opposite them, at the extreme end of the long hall, they could make out a vague white patch against the dark background. It was the prisoner. She had dragged herself painfully to her place. When Charmeleau had magisterially installed himself in his, he sat down, then rose, and said, without too great a show of vanity at his success, "'The prisoner has confessed everything.'" "'Gypsy girl,' began the president, "'have you confessed all your crimes of sorcery, prostitution, and murder committed upon Phoebus de Chateaupers?' Her heart sank within her, and she sobbed aloud in the darkness. "'Whatever you please,' she replied feebly. "'But kill me quickly.' "'Sir Proxy to the Ecclesiastical Court,' said the President. "'The Court is ready to hear your requisitions.' Master Charmeleau drew forth a tremendous bundle of papers, and began to read, with many gestures, and the exaggerated emphasis common to lawyers— a Latin speech, in which all the evidence produced during the trial was set forth in Ciceronian paraphrases, flanked by quotations from Plaudus, his favorite comic author. We regret that we cannot present our readers with this remarkable piece of oratory. The speaker delivered it with wonderful effect. Long before he had ended the exordium, the perspiration poured down his face, and his eyes seemed starting from his head. All at once, in the very middle of a period, he paused, and his glance, usually mild enough and even stupid, became withering. "'Gentlemen,' he exclaimed, but in French, for this was not set down in his manuscript, "'Satan plays so large a part in this affair that yonder he stands, listening to our discussions and making a mock of their majesty.' 
Behold! As he spoke, he pointed to the little goat, which, seeing Charmelou gesticulate, sincerely thought that it was but right for her to do the same, and sitting up on her haunches, was imitating, to the best of her ability, with her four feet and her bearded head, the pathetic pantomime of the king's proxy. This was, it may be remembered, one of her best tricks. This incident, this final proof, produced a great effect. The goat's feet were tied together, and the king's proxy resumed the thread of his eloquence. His speech was very long, but the peroration was admirable. We give the concluding phrase. The reader may imagine Master Charmelou's hoarse voice and frantic gestures. I'm going to spare you the long Latin passage here and just read the translation. Therefore, gentlemen, the witchcraft being proved and the crime made manifest, as likewise the criminal intention, in the name of the Holy Church of Notre-Dame de Paris, which is seized of the right of all manner of justice, high and low, within this inviolate island of the city, we declare by the tenor of these presents that we require, firstly, a pecuniary compensation, secondly, penance before the great portal of the Cathedral Church of Notre-Dame, thirdly, a sentence by the virtue of which this witch, with her goat, shall either in the public square, commonly called the Place de Greve, or in the island stretching out into the Seine, adjacent to the royal gardens, be executed. He put on his cap and sat down. Eu, said the agonized Gringoire, basa latinitas. Oh, the monk's Latin. Another man in a black gown near the prisoner rose. This was her lawyer. The judges, being hungry, began to murmur. Be brief, sir lawyer, said the president. Mr. President, replied the lawyer, the defendant having confessed her crime, I have but a few words to say to the bench. It is laid down in the Salic law that if a witch have devoured a man, and she be convicted of the crime, she shall pay a fine of eight thousand farthings, which make two hundred pence in gold. May it please the court to sentence my client to pay this fine. That law is obsolete, said the king's proxy. Nay, go. I say no, replied the lawyer. Put it to the vote, said a counselor. The crime is clear, and it is late. The question was put to the vote without leaving the hall. The judges nodded assent. They were in haste. Their hooded heads were uncovered one after the other in the darkness, in response to the fatal question put to them in a low tone by the president. The poor prisoner seemed to be looking at them, but her dim eyes saw nothing. The clerk began to write. Then he handed the president a lengthy parchment. The unhappy girl heard a stir among the people. The pikes clashed and an icy voice said, Gypsy girl, upon such day as it shall please the Lord our King, at the hour of noon, you shall be taken in a tumbrel, in your shift, barefoot, a rope around your neck, to the square before the great door of Notre Dame, and shall there do proper penance, 
with a wax candle of the weight of two pounds in your hand. And thence you shall be taken to the Place de Greve, where you shall be hanged and strangled on the city gibbet. And likewise this your goat. And you shall pay to the judges of the bishop's court three golden lions, in atonement for the crimes by you committed and by you confessed, of sorcery, magic, prostitution, and murder, upon the person of Lord Phoebus de Chateaupers. And may God have mercy on your soul. Oh, it is a dream, she murmured, and she felt rude hands bear her away 